Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. I'm really excited today to be talking with Greg Dale. He's a professor of sports psychology and sports ethics at Duke University. He's also the director of the sports psychology and leadership programs for Duke Athletics. He also consults with uh, a lot of college and professional athletes, uh, does workshops for coaches, parents, student-athletes, youth, middle, and high school levels. He's done team-building performance and leadership consulting for some of the big corporations around the world that we'd recognize, like IBM, World Bank, uh, even Habitat for Humanity. Um, And he's written four books on leadership and performance. the Fulfilling Ride, A Parent's Guide to Helping Athletes Have a Successful Sport Experience. It's a Mental Thing, Five Keys to Improving Performance and Enjoying Sport. 101 Team Building Activities, Ideas Every Coach Can Use to Enhance Teamwork, Communication and Trust, <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me, and The Seven Secrets of Successful Coaches with Jeff Jansen. Uh, Greg, uh, also should mention that you're a member of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board and really appreciate your support for the PCA movement and your willingness to take some time to talk to talk to me today. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to do that, Jim. So I look at it as an honor to be able to be a part of that National Advisory Board, and I'm excited to spend some time with you this morning. Fantastic. In the seat, <clears throat> excuse me. In the seven secrets of successful coaches, you you talk about the credible coach and how coaches want to become or should want to become a credible coach. Why is credibility such a key element, and what are the keys to coaches becoming a credible coach? Yeah, I think you know anyone in a leadership position, you know, ultimately your success, I believe, comes down to the credibility that you have with those people you're trying to lead and. I look at credibility like a bank account, and you're either making deposits into that account or you're making withdrawals from that account sometimes. And uh, coaches, you know, uh, at all levels are trying to get kids to buy into them and their program and their values and the way they do things. And, uh, you know, if you're a coach and you want to be successful and you want to be able to maximize whatever talent level you have within your program, then you have to really think about your credibility and how you can establish that and how you maintain that and how you avoid losing credibility. And a couple things come to mind right away, obviously, is that you, as a coach, you, people have to know you care about them. The kids have to know that, that at some level you care about them more than just someone who can help them be successful. And uh, I find that um, coaches that are truly – uh, have evolved enough to be into that servant leadership mode, and I, I'm, I'm, I honestly think that for many coaches it takes an evolution. They don't just automatically start off that way. They, they, their heart might be in the right place, but sometimes the competitive part of it, their desire to win, and those kinds of things take over. And uh, but when kids know that it's about them and it's a truly about helping them grow and develop, then they're going to be more likely to to really uh, work hard and, and, and buy into what you're trying to get them to do. So I, I really try to get coaches to be careful about saying too many I statements or me or my statements. Be careful about saying my team and I do this. And I, I would argue it's not your team as a coach. It's the athlete's team. And it's actually, if you can if you can talk about it in an our team, like we and us and our, that's going to uh, go a long way to help you understand the importance of keeping the kids and the and the athletes in mind. And, and I would argue that's at any level, wherever you go. And, uh, you know, there's several other characteristics I, I find that credible coaches possess that, you know, they're able to challenge athletes without destroying their uh, confidence in the process. So I think, for instance, there's a difference in being intense as a coach and being emotional as a coach. Intense, sometimes I think we make coaches apologize for being intense, but I think Intensity is okay if it's uh, it, it means to me that we care. It's important to us. We've worked really hard, um, but emotional tends to be more reactionary, and many times can get you in trouble. You might regret some of the things that you might say, and so can you be uh, em- can you maintain your intensity without becoming emotional? And I think when you become 
uh, emotional and say things you might later regret, then you're going to lose credibility. You also have to follow through on what you say you're going to do. It's like parenting. If you state this, then, boy, you better follow through on that. And that's why I encourage coaches to be careful about stating too many consequences ahead of time. I think I know as a young coach myself, when I first started, I had a nice long list of rules, and I stated all the consequences ahead of time. And, boy, I painted myself into a corner right yeah. and left. And uh, as one coach said, you know, life is a series of extenuating circumstances. And as a coach, you have to be able to to take those things into consideration. But if you state all the consequences ahead of time, then it's very difficult to take into consideration extenuating circumstances. And so then if you start backpedaling, you start to lose credibility. So being a great leader is really about how do you uh, establish some core values or some of our standards and then hold kids accountable and know they'll know that there are going to be consequences if they don't follow through on that. But be careful about laying all those out. Uh, I, I could talk for, you know, I do three-hour workshops on this, so I could go on and on. But th that's kind of a, a few things to think about from a credibility standpoint. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, I was, one of the things you mentioned about if you say something you regret or, or uh, you know, screw up in some way, uh, one of the things I've found is that it's really, in fact, some of my best friends over the <laughs> over my life have been people I've apologized to. It's like, hey, I'm really sorry. It's a lot of coaches a lot of people in general, but I think a lot of coaches have trouble apologizing. No question. You know, Jim, I, I think that is so important. I would argue at some level your credibility will go up if you can go in there and say to them after it's over and it didn't go well, when it's appropriate to say, you know what, that's on me. I I made a mistake there, or I, I did this, or I did that, and I apologize, or I'm, uh, you know, I messed up. I, I would also say you can't go in every other day and say, wow, boy, I blew another one. Right. But you <laughs> you do have to, when it's appropriate, be able to do that. And the best coaches are willing to take the credit when things don't go well and it's appropriate. And they're also very willing to distribute the credit when things do go well. And if you think about, you know, what's it like to work for somebody who's never wrong? It, it's really not motivating. It's really uh, demoralizing. And I would argue it's the same thing with, with kids. And I, I sit around with coaches many times after competitions and over and very seldom even amongst themselves when nobody else is around do I hear them say you know I think we got out coached today I think you know it's always you know those kids could have done this or those guys could have done this and I think you have to be mature enough secure enough uh, humble enough to be willing to admit that you're wrong because if you can do that I think your credibility goes up. Yeah I just I wrote down what you just said what what would it be like to work for someone who's never wrong um, that's bad enough, but what would it be like to work for someone who acts like he's never wrong, <laughs> even when he is? Right. Right. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. And it's, um, it, it's, it, it's not, it's frustrating and it's demoralizing and it, it's not fun for sure. I, I, I teasingly say, what would it be like to be married to somebody who's never wrong? And uh, one guy told, said one time, three times now he's been married to somebody who's never wrong. So I guess he hadn't figured that one out yet. It, it is, uh, it, it's very difficult to work with or play for someone who, you, uh, who thinks that they're never wrong, even when they are wrong. You know, we um, talk about we, we talk about skills that coaches have or leaders have and personality traits. And there's a, you know, I've heard many people say you have to be authentic. You know, if you're if you're a screamer, then you know maybe you need to scream. Um, and and not being authentic um, or being perceived as not authentic can undercut your credibility. Can you talk about skills versus personality traits in somebody who, you know, is starting out as a coach, wants to be the best coach uh, he or she can be. Um, Personality traits versus skills. Any thoughts there? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I don't think there's one set of core personality traits that we, you know, that we could say you have to have these in order to be a great coach. Are you, you know, you're um, really organized or you are an extrovert or you're highly dominant or, um, you know, there's a, there's no, I would argue there's no set formula for that. But in terms of the skills, I think, we can develop skills and, and sure, should you be authentic? I'd say be authentic unless you're a jerk. And if you're a jerk, then we probably need to think seriously about that. And I think some people use that as an excuse. I think you 
you're not going to change you who you are personality-wise at the core, but I would argue you can adapt your behaviors to be more successful. For instance, if you're really loud and you're dominant and you're not very uh, you're not very good in terms of relationship building, then I would argue you need to change your behavior and work very hard to develop quality, authentic relationships with the athletes that you're coaching at whatever level you're coaching. And you might not be a, a hugger. And, uh, uh, you know, I was doing a workshop with a group of coaches not long ago and a college football coach spoke right after I did. And it was interesting, Jim, he talked about how, you know, when he goes into the homes of these college kids, and I think it applies to little kids as well, that that uh, when he goes in there, he tells them that he's going to treat their son like he treats his own sons. And that, and he truly says, you know, we all say that, but he truly tries to do that. He tries to think, you know, how would I want someone to coach my son? And uh, I want to coach Mike. I want to coach other people's kids like I'd want somebody to coach my son. And he says one of the things that that he does, and a lot of people look at him like he's crazy, but on game day when they walk in, uh, they're getting ready to put their pads on and go out there and put their bodies on the line for this program that. He wants these guys to know he cares. He gives every one of them a hug, kisses them on the cheek, and he tells them he loves them. And it's authentic. I've talked to some of the guys who play for him, and I'm not saying as a coach that you have to hug hug kids and kiss them on the cheek and tell them you love them, but you've got to figure out a way to show them that you care about them, that you are empathetic, that you have uh, some of the emotional intelligence that Daniel Goleman has talked about and that we don't talk near enough about in, in sport, but you have to be able to, to show that if you truly want athletes to buy into you and it be more than just a transactional situation, if you want to be transformational with them, you have to be willing to do that. Uh, so in terms of being authentic, you can, you don't have to be a hugger and a kisser and tell them you love them, but boy, you better in your own way, it better come across very clearly that you care about them and that they're very important to you and that you respect them uh, as individuals and as people. You know, I've been working on a, a book on team culture and thinking about, and I want to talk to you about culture down, yeah, down the road here a little bit. Um, and uh, your comment about kids knowing that you care. And, I, you know, there's this, um, there's this phrase uh, that I've heard for many, many years, and I was really surprised when I found out who said it first. Um, uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And <clears throat> when I looked it up, and it always bugged me. It seemed like such a cliche, cliche but you know, cliches have some meaning, to, <laughs> some truth in them. And I looked it up, and it was actually President Teddy Roosevelt who said that. Oh wow! And um, that you know, it seems like. Uh, the ability to bond with your players. If you don't have that, I love what you said, be authentic unless you're a jerk. <laughs> and then yeah. you need to work on yourself if, if, uh, that's, if right. that's the problem. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just truly think that, you know, it comes down to relationships and, you know, one of the things I talk to coaches about all the time is that, you know, is it important that athletes like their coach? That's a, that word like is really hard for a lot of coaches. And uh, they'll say, I don't care if they like me. I just want them to respect me. And I, I, what I find is that the very best coaches, they have the respect, but they also have the like as a byproduct of how they treat people. They don't go into it with their goal being, I want everybody to like me. But you know what? They do things the right way. They treat people with respect. They're demanding. They have high standards. They hold people accountable, uh, and but as a result of how they treat people, people also like them. I, I would tell you the very best coaches, athletes say, I love my coach, and I love playing for my coach. And to me, if you want to be uh, considered to be a great coach, then it comes down to those relationships, I would argue. And if kids can say, you know, I didn't like him every day, I don't like him every day, but boy, I love playing for him, and I love uh, being a part of the program and, and a part of our team because I think if kids, if athletes want to play for themselves, they want to play for their teammates, but they also love playing for their coach and they want to play for their coach, that's pretty powerful. Uh, so it, liking people, liking their coach, it, it can't be a, 
a goal. And sometimes as young coaches, I remember myself as a young coach, that was kind of my goal. And I wouldn't, I didn't quite hold everybody accountable because I was worried whether they were going to be mad at me or not. And it's not about that. But again, I think if it comes as a byproduct of how you, how you treat people. And um, I just think it's truly, truly a, a great situation when you can have that. You know, I um, I'm, I'm sure you know Joe Ehrman. Um, uh-huh. I, I I I give him a lot of credit for coaches being willing to say they love their athletes. I remember a friend of mine sent me a video of um, Joe on Greg Gumb- uh, Bryant Gumbel's Real Sports, mm-hmm. and where he's saying to his football team, you know, what's what's your job as players to love each other? What's our job as coaches to love you? And now, you know, I think so many coaches say that, but at the time it was yeah. shocking. Right. Yes. Especially and as I think, a football I feel like coach. <laughs> a big, a successful yeah. NFL football player who's a coach, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of had to start with uh, the most macho sport in a way. Yeah, um, yes. No question. And I just think, you know, again, coaches are held accountable because of uh, of their wins and losses, certainly as, as people get older, or I'm sorry, the higher you go, but even at the, the highest levels in a, in writing that book and, you know, we're revising that now and uh, hopefully we'll have another uh, edition coming out next year that, that in talking to these credible coaches, it, it you, you can have high standards and you can hold people accountable but still treat people with respect. And you, you are leaving footprints wherever you go as a coach. You have a huge impact on kids. And if you were to ask a coach, any coach in America, how do you want the, the athletes to remember you? I'm telling you, at some level, they're all going to say the right things. They all say that, you know, that uh, they knew I cared about them. I had high standards. I held them accountable. I was demanding. Uh, none of them are going to say I was a jerk and I didn't. I had double standards and I – you know, uh, it was all about me. Nobody, nobody ever really says that. Um, but they are having an impact. You're leaving a legacy, and I think we got to. As Stephen Covey talked about, begin with the end in mind. We got to get coaches to continually think about when you look back on your career. What do you want to be able to say about that, and how do you want to yeah. be remembered? Yeah. <clears throat> um, let's talk about um, team culture a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, You've worked with um, a whole bunch of teams in sports and, and also um, business units. Um, what what um, what makes a, a great team culture or a great organizational culture in your mind? Yes. You know, it's it's that that Peter Drucker said you know a long time ago that culture will eat strategy for breakfast and. Uh, a couple of other people have said it will eat it for lunch, and I'm going to say it's going to eat it for dinner. It's going <laughs> to eat everything. If uh, and interestingly enough, I find that coaches really uh, struggle with culture because it's not in their wheelhouse. It's not something that necessarily is a strength. It's not what they're comfortable with. They're comfortable with breaking down and diagramming X's and O's and the technical part of what they do and. And, and and doing those things, but the best coaches uh, value and spend time on culture each and every day, and and, and in organizations. And I, I think what I'm finding is one of the things that's truly lacking in most teams and most organizations is what I would call authentic conversations, authentic relationships, where we're truly open and honest and vulnerable with each other. Being able to to do that is uh, is very powerful, but is so uh, so far and few between where you truly see that. I, I've spent a lot of time with Brene Brown's work and her work on vulnerability, and I work very hard with the athletic teams I work with and the uh, organizations I work with to help some break down some of those barriers. Because you know, in our society, when we when we hear that term vulnerability, boy, that's weakness, and that's going to be taken advantage of. And I'm opening myself up, but but as uh, Brene Brown uh, in her work has found that it's the it's the foundation of innovation and creativity and performance. And uh, I, I really find that 
that is an area that that teams and and groups struggle with. Uh, that and and really truly knowing what uh, you know what their what their purpose is, and then how do we align ourselves along those lines with what that is, and and then hold each other accountable to what we've decided uh, the standards that we're going to have to help us accomplish what our purpose is. Yep, um, <clears throat> fantastic, fantastic. Um, are there are there any examples of uh, and, and you know, no, no, no answer is 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 fine here. But are there any sports teams or business organizations that you've worked with or you've known that just really seem to have uh, have solved the culture thing? And solved not the right word, mastered it, and have a great culture. Yeah, I, the one that I look at at the professional level or the is. Um, the All Blacks, New Zealand, uh, the Australian Rules Football Team, you know, they weren't they weren't very successful. They were falling short in in world championships, and they really found that it wasn't talent and it wasn't uh, a lack of skill. It was a it was a, it was a culture thing, and they have been very deliberate and conscious and conscientious about the type of culture that they want to create and. Uh, they they spend a lot of time talking about the privilege of wearing that jersey and leaving the jersey in a better place than than the way you found it and taking a lot of responsibility with that and that you know the idea the legacy of the jersey is much more uh, imposing and much more difficult to 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 deal with than any opponent that they're going to face and they spend a lot of time around that and it's about selflessness it's about team it's about uh, servant leadership the captains are the ones that clean out the shed as they call it and they're the ones that sweep up after everybody's leaving Uh, they work very hard to keep everyone humble and uh, they have they have transformed their culture through a lot of hard work and uh, they uh, I think in a sports world are a great example of what that culture, um, what it should look like. And, um, you know, I think a lot of different teams, uh, you know, cu- the, the problem with culture is, and I, I think you know this, is that it, it needs constant nurturing. It needs constant attention. It needs constant um, nourishment. And a lot of times coaches will will do some stuff at the beginning of the year and, and then we're good. And, uh, it needs it needs attention all the time, and it needs to also. Uh, I find is that the uh, the leaders within the the team are going to be the ultimately the ones that drive that culture. And so, can we give them the authority to uh, be able to help drive that that culture? Um, and I just think it's really important. But the All Blacks definitely are an example of a culture athletically that they're there. I think, you know, I, I don't know him very well, and I want to spend a little bit more time with him, but uh, Coach Bronco Mendenhall, who is the new football coach at University of Virginia, he was at BYU for several years, first as an assistant, and then uh, went on and took on the head coaching job and was very, very, very successful there and and uh, works a lot on culture and how he uh, is doing things. He's doing things the right way. He's a highly credible coach, and I'm going to be interested to see where his program is in four or five years. But they create a real sense of unity and privilege, that it's a privilege to wear the Virginia Cavalier saber, and and you have to earn that. It's not just automatically given to you, and uh, they work very hard to create some accountability there. You know, one of the coaches that I really admire who <clears throat> has really spent a lot of time with with uh, the team culture um, is Jack Clark, the rugby coach at University of California at Berkeley. And, um, you know, rugby seems to maybe in this country, maybe because it, there's not a lot of money behind it, there's not a lot of attention, but, uh, you know, the culture of rugby is, um, you know, after a game you have a meal and drink 
drink some beer with, with your yeah. opponents. Yeah. You try to yeah. beat each other up on the field, and then right. there's that respect afterwards. And, boy, that mm-hmm. seems to be lost in so many, that camaraderie. Um, uh, just to diverge a little bit, <clears throat> I, I got introduced recently, reintroduced to um, a, 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 an athlete. His name is Barry Mayer, and he was a, a stu- super athlete in Fargo, North Dakota. I grew up in West Fargo. And I'm really excited because he's getting involved with um, with Positive Coach Alliance as a trainer, and he played football for the University of Minnesota. And one of the things in, in my conversation with him was, you know, one of my regrets was he was such a great athlete, so much better than me. And I also admired him as a person, just the way he carried himself. And I said one of my regrets was that I never got to know my competitors on the other teams that, that we competed with because – we could, you know, it would have been great to be friends with them. Uh, and you see that a little bit now. I think people complain about AAU basketball. But yeah. one of the things about AAU, the players play each other so much. By the time they get to college, by the time they get the pros, they've been on teams with each other. They play against each other. And there's a little bit of a camaraderie there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's a that's a good point. That's one positive that comes out of that, right? Yeah, for sure. That's a that's that's exactly right, and and you know that camaraderie. Uh, I think rugby is a is a great example of that, and perhaps it is because it's under the radar, so to speak, and not as much attention paid to it. But I just think there's something that we could we could all learn from that culture of camaraderie. And you know the the reality is is that you're not going to like all your teammates all the time, but we you know, the teams I work with we work very hard to try to truly create that that brotherhood and that sisterhood and that, that we might not like each other every day, just like our own siblings, but we care about each other. And that, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully by the end of the time, we love each other and we're truly connected like brothers and sisters, but that takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, constant attention, and it doesn't just happen. You have to create opportunities for people to open up and be vulnerable with each other, to have a better understanding of where people are coming from so that you can develop that trust that's so important in any sort of authentic quality relationship. But coaches struggle spending time on that. Yeah, you know, the like liking someone versus loving, I always mm-hmm. used to say that um, liking, we don't have control over whether we like someone or not, but we do have control over whether we love someone because that's an action. You know, we can uh, yeah. act in love. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when you act as if, um, you know, I have a lot of friends in the the 12-step movement, recovery, Uh um, and, you know, they talk about make it till you fake it, acting as if. When you act Mm -hmm. as if you like someone, pretty soon, uh, through cognitive dissonance or whatever, you know, that that person is kind of likable. That's right. If you work to try to find something that you can like about someone, then you're exactly right. Uh, and, and I think while you can't always pick your teammates, like you said, you can you can work very hard to try to find something that you like about them, and hopefully then that relationship grows even deeper. You know, um, one of your books is uh, it's called it's called it's a mental thing, uh, and the mm-hmm. subtitle is Five Keys to Improving Performance and Enjoying Sport. Um, let's talk about that. What you know, your your characterization of those five keys. What what is really crucial for athletes to focus on um, mental skills wise, attitudes, et cetera, to to be able to approach their potential? Yeah. So, you know, I um, uh, wrote that book with a colleague of mine. We just, you know, I jokingly say it's only 100 pages, big print, lots of pictures. It's written so that it's a, it's an easy read for folks. But I, I think it really starts in practice. And a lot of people say they want to be great and they really want to be good and they're committed. But at the end of the day, what does your commitment really look like? And uh, we talk a lot about the importance of practicing with a purpose every day, being where your feet are, being in the moment there, and doing some things to to help you do that. Uh, Because I think much of what happens um, is the great commercial, the uh, Under Armour commercial, uh, from Michael Phelps when he, you know, during the Olympics, it's a great line. And it's so true that, that, you know, what you do in the dark is, is that's what brings you into the light. And so are you doing extra work? Are you 
putting in quality time or are you just going through the motions? And it really starts in practice and uh, developing some of those uh, habits of being able to, like I said, be where your feet are and be able to practice with a purpose. And those are very much a, a mental thing, so to speak. Uh, we talk about confidence, and I really truly believe that ultimately true confidence is not a gift that other people give you. Uh, so a lot of us depend way too much on other people for our own confidence. And if I, if I depend on you to give it to me, then you can certainly take it away very quickly. Other people can influence it, but I, I try to get athletes to take some more ownership and responsibility for their own confidence. And confidence comes from knowing you're prepared. So if you do the things that we talk about in terms of practicing with a purpose and doing extra work and, uh, and doing things with, uh, with, with direction and, as I said, purpose, then you're probably going to feel a little more confident. It comes from how you talk to yourself. And many athletes, because of they're so hard on themselves, uh, and part of that's part of the reason why they're so successful, but it also, when things aren't going well, can really undermine your confidence. And so I spent a lot of time talking, talking about self-talk and helping them understand the power of self-talk and, and giving them some ideas about how to uh, work through adversity, deal with mistakes, call it the three-second rule, for instance. If you're thinking about a mistake for more than three seconds, you're probably not being mentally tough in that moment. So what are some ways that we can let that go and, and move on from that? And part of that is how you talk to yourself afterwards and the body language that you're um, – that you're demonstrating during that time is really, really important. So spend some time on that. And then pressure uh, is another key thing. And as, as you were saying earlier, that Ken Revisa talks about, you know, the higher you go, the more the pressure is. And I, I think that anything you ever do in your life that's considered to be great will be filled with expectation. It'll be filled with pressure. It'll be filled with all those things. And ultimately the people that deal with those situations and handle those situations more effectively are the ones that are going to do well. And there's a, a great saying, the SEALs have adopted it, and I, I've certainly taken it from them. But, you know, you don't, in those moments of stress and, and pressure, you don't rise to the occasion. You just fall back to the training that you've done up until this point. And so I truly believe that, you know, when you're playing for a championship or you're in those pressure moments, uh, if you feel like you have to be special for some reason in order to do well, then you're not going to do well. But if you've been putting in the work and you believe in yourself and you've developed a foundation of confidence, then you can trust yourself that I don't have to be special. I'll just keep doing what I've been doing and uh, I'm going to be just fine. And I find that those people in those moments are the ones that tend to do better rather than feeling like I have to be special because they're either not confident or they're caught up in all the things that don't matter, like other people's expectations, the size of the crowd, the finality of the situation, those kinds of things. And then, and then you know, we talk about character and the importance of demonstrating positive character, not just uh, from an ethic, ethics perspective, but also being a great teammate. And what, how do you handle it when you're not playing the role that you want on your team? And you know, Gino Ariyama has come out recently talking about at UConn that if you are on the bench and you're not cheering your teammates on, regardless of how uh, how talented you are, you're not going to play. Our men's basketball team here, they film the bench regularly during competitions, and they want to see what you're what you're like. And one of our guys who graduated and left as a as a national champion and a captain on the team as a freshman was caught on film just hanging his head, not cheering on his teammates, uh, had a towel over his head, and the message to him was, if you don't change that, you can go ahead and transfer because you'll never never play here. And this guy completely changed what he was doing and was more, uh, was more of a great teammate. So we, we talk about how do you handle it when things aren't going your way, and particularly like as, you know, being a teammate and – through adversity, how do you handle that? And then lastly, but not least, is it's really important to enjoy the journey and truly try to enjoy the process of the everyday. And it can't be based on whether you win or lose, but if you're truly going to maximize your potential as a performer, uh, you have to try to enjoy the process of the everyday journey. So that's kind of in a yeah. nutshell talk about there. Those, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Leo Lindbeck III, um, 
said something to me once, and I, I used it in one of my books. Uh, he said, if you don't ever want to have much impact in life, you don't. Uh, you can live a life without pressure. Um, but if you want to have an impact, you have to deal with pressure. And that's just like, that's the deal. And Yes, it is. Um, when you when you look at it that way, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I I want to have an impact. When I, you know, I breathe my last breath, I want to have have made an impact, and that means I got to deal with a lot of problems, a lot of pressure that right. yeah. otherwise wouldn't yeah. have to. Yeah, you you can go through your whole life and not really have impact, so you don't feel that pressure or or be okay with just being you know mediocre or whatever. But if you truly want to be great, boy, it's going to be there. So. How do you embrace that? How do you how do you look at it as an opportunity, and how do you thrive in those moments? Is is really key. You know, I, I want to ask you about parents. You've written a book about yeah. sports parents, yeah. and um, yeah. when we, you know, we Positive Coaching Alliance did twenty five hundred live workshops around the country last year. A lot of them for parents, and often, often, often we get uh, you know the the parents complaining about other parents or coaches complaining about parents. Um, you know, Positive Coaching Alliance is Positive Coaching Alliance. It was mm-hmm. when I started; it was all about coaches and kids, and now mm-hmm. it seems to me there's there's more um, focus on misbehaving parents. What mm-hmm. what advice do you have for for parents, for coaches who deal with parents, for yeah. athletic yeah. directors and, and organization leaders who are trying to get control of their parents? Yes, and I, you know, I, like you, Jim, I think. You know, I obviously I do it on a much smaller scale, and I, but when I if a, if a group is going to ask me to come to their school or organization and want me to talk to the coaches, I say, well, that'd be great, but I'd love to, I, I want to talk to the parents and the the kids as well because it's all three of those groups uh, have a have a role, and parents do have a role, uh, and I think I from my perspective, the overwhelming majority of parents have their hearts in the right place. We just yep. lose perspective when it comes to our children, and I, I truly believe that deep down, kids haven't changed. Kids are kids have, as they've always been, but I think technology and parents have changed, and so as a result of that, uh, kids are uh, coming out of school and going into college and out of college uh, with different sets of challenges and uh, than than perhaps we did when we were kids. And I think parents, one of the things I just try to get them to do is. Think about, I, I kind of hit them right between the eyes with an, in an all-shucks kind of way. I try to affirm them, but also challenge them and really get them to think about, you know, what are, for instance, what are the lessons that you want your kids to learn? And inevitably, they'll always say teamwork uh, is always like yeah. the first thing that they'll say. And, and I really kind of push back and I say, you know, I, I think we want everyone else's child to learn teamwork. We don't want our own children to learn teamwork. We, you know, if our child's on the bench, boy, that's pretty 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 hard for us. If, if if our sibling has a child on the bench, that's not near as difficult for us. But when our kid's on the bench, it becomes a different situation. And if teamwork yeah. is important to yeah. us, are we going to, and your child is kind of pouting over there or not engaged with the rest of the team because he or she's not playing, are you going to have a conversation with the coach about why my child's not playing? Or are you going to have a conversation with your child about what it means to be a great teammate, even if you uh, even if you're not getting to play the role that you want. Because if teamwork is important, we have to model it, we have to hold them accountable to it, and have to understand that we have to be part of that and helping them learn that. And, you know, one guy sort of jokingly, but I don't think he was joking when he said it, his son was playing basketball at the time, and we were talking about teamwork. He said, look, Greg, I'm all about teamwork as long as the four best and my guy are out there. <laughs> I'm all over teamwork. And I think <laughs> that's how a lot of parents look at it. And uh, I, I just truly believe they'll, they'll say sportsmanship, another one. So if you go to a pro basketball game or a pro football game or a major league baseball game and sit in the outfield as a kid, are you going to learn great sportsmanship there? I think, unfortunately, in many places, not so much. They're watching us. So I challenge parents, are you modeling sportsmanship in the way you interact with officials during games? Uh, yeah. Because they're watching us. And you know, uh, a, a sign, a couple signs that you, uh, we had this one lady was telling me that she videotaped a guy for five games because she called him, they called him leather lungs because he would yell at the coaches and the kids and everybody, nobody was safe. So she videotaped him, put it, put it, put that videotape in an envelope, sent it to him anonymously in the mail 
and says, I think you ought to take a look at this and see what kind of idiot you're making out of yourself. And she said, you know, from that <laughs> next game on, that guy was a completely changed man. And I tell parents, so if you ever get a videotape in the mail and says, I think you ought to take a look at this, that might be an indication you're out of control. Or if your spouse or significant other is too embarrassed to sit by you during a competition, yeah, that might be an indication that you've lost perspective. So I just think it's really, really important. Uh, another thing real quickly, I know you guys talk about this stuff too, but I, you know, I talk about before, during, and after competition. And, you know, the most damage is done typically after competition. But, you know, during competition, I, I ask kids, I, I try to get the kids to come with the parents when they, the parents come. Because I'll ask the kids, how many of you love it when mom or dad continually coach you from the sidelines during the game? Nobody ever raises their hand. That's pretty powerful for the parents to see that, right? So uh, I have a good friend, and I learned this from him. But I, I think that we as parents need to eliminate verbs when we watch our children play. Yeah. Just cheer our kids on, encourage them, but no more verbs. How about positive adjectives? And after it's over, as we all know, love seeing you out there with your friends. A good friend of mine, his son is a sophomore in high school, and he used to coach him when he was younger, and he would uh, – you know, after it's over now, they, you used to hug, but now they kind of fist bump or whatever. And he, he says, I love seeing you out there with your friends. And then he says, do you want me to be your coach or you just want me to be your dad right now? And the kid says, when he says, I just want you to be dad, they don't talk about it. That's awesome. Because I think in those moments afterwards, us feeling that desire to, why did you do this? And how come you did that? And why did you do this? Well, that's about us. And we're selfish because those kids don't need that in that moment. So I challenge parents to go home and talk to their kids and ask them what they need after, after it's over. Um, and, you know, I could go on and on about some of those, but those are some of the kind of key things yeah, that's I great. try to challenge parents with. I, you know, I, I did a, a, a workshop many years ago and there was a guy there who, I, I wish I'd remember who he was and written his name down. Cause it's really a brilliant idea. He said he had a cap that said coach on it and he's coaching his own kid. He would, and we use this in our workshops now in our, in one of my books, um, get in the car, drive to the, with your son or daughter to the game, I'm your dad. You're the most important thing in the world to me. We get yeah. out of the car, I put my coach hat on, and a literal hat that said coach on it. Now you don't need to treat me um, like the coach, like somebody else, if I, as if I were somebody else's yeah. dad. Yeah. And I need to treat you like every other kid, and can you handle that? And, you know, having that conversation ahead of time and then, okay, now we're back in the car, uh, my hat comes off, I'm your dad. Uh, we can do that metaphorically, but he actually had a <laughs> had a hat that said that. I, I thought that it. was such a brilliant oh, idea. Oh, it's great. I love that. And so many parents coach their own children, as you know, particularly, obviously, at the youth level. And what a great experience that can be, but what an also very difficult experience that can be for the for the kids if mom or dad – don't have the ability to separate those two things, mom and and dad. And you know, I I, I you know I can share this because it was it's public because it was out there. And uh, I have the opportunity to do some work there at the Pro Football Hall of Fame and just trying to help them start to do some educational programming and uh, for coaches. And they uh, I was at the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremony this last year, and Brett Farr was inducted. And I just kind of broke my heart a little bit that, you know, his dad pushed him. His dad was his coach. Um, but, you know, and as he talks about his dad, he talks about him in a loving way. And his dad has passed on now. But essentially said, you know, my dad told my dad never told me I was good enough. And uh, here's this grown man who's a grandfather now, tears streaming down his face. He's looking up into heaven and saying, I hope he thinks I'm good enough now. And to me, wow. that's 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 really powerful, but not necessarily necessarily in a great way. I think, boy, we got to push our kids, and can we do that? But it's okay to tell them, great job. It's okay to uh, that you're good enough. It drove Brett, Brett Favre to become great, but a part of the reason why. But for every Brett Favre out there, there's a lot of other ones that aren't going to respond as well to that kind of situation. You know. Um... You you said something like that earlier that that you know that being hard on yourself can can help you improve. The the subtitle to your book, the, it's a mental thing, was five keys to improving performance and enjoying sport. 
And um, I, I was at a mindfulness treat, uh, retreat uh, several years ago, and, and one of the speakers said something, and it just hit me like a, you know, a gong going off in my head. He said, gentleness with self is the gateway to courage. And I just don't buy into the idea that people are great because they're hard on themselves. I would, mm-hmm. I would almost say Brett Favre was great in spite of rather yes, than because yeah, of that. Yes, yeah. that, no, no question. Yes. Well, you know, so um, I, I love that quote, though, by the way. That's, that's uh, how powerful is that? That's incredible. I love that. Um, so here, you know, I, I'm here at Duke and you know, I work with some, I'm a little biased, but I think our, like where you are at Sanford, it's, we have great kids who are highly motivated and driven and going to go out and conquer the world, right? In their own little parts of the world. And what I find is a lot of our kids are perfectionists. They fear yep. failure and they care a lot about what people think. Now, if you think about that, those are, uh, I, and I would argue that caring about what people think can be a positive thing. At some level, being afraid to fail pushes you, causes you to, um, say, work hard and, and make sure you study or do whatever, or uh, being a perfectionist can, but those very same qualities can also be very negative for you and very much a uh, a challenge for you and limit your ability to enjoy yourself and limit your ability to thrive in those pressure situations. And part of the mindfulness piece of this is helping them be more mindful of and recognizing it's okay that I'm that way. It's okay that I'm that way, but uh, but that I'm going to choose to respond differently in this particular situation. And through a process, you can learn to do that. And so I would say pushing your children, we do have to push them. But you can obviously, and I think you're exactly right, that Brett was successful in spite of that, perhaps not because of that. But if his dad would have taken it to a certain point and not gone over that line and, and was able to encourage him and tell him you did a, you know, that you are good enough, um, that – that, that that would probably obviously work even better. But you understand what I'm saying about these great qualities that we possess, Absolutely. but they can also be very limiting as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, there was one other thing that just passed through my mind, it's, but it's gone now. Um, this has been fantastic. Let me, uh, let me ask um, a very practical question for the coaches uh, who mm-hmm. are um, going to listen to this podcast. Uh, you got a book on uh, team building activities, and I'm wondering if um, you could describe one or maybe two team building activities that um, any coach could take and use at their next next practice to to help build build their team. Yeah, um, a couple. I, I'll do. I'll talk about one that uh, I just used recently with one of our teams and. Uh, it's a it's a great one. It's called Biz Buzz, and it's a it's a simple one where teams. If you have a larger team, you kind of split them into different groups, and they have to do a counting sequence uh, in that group and go back and forth. And they can't say a number seven is multiple of seven or a number with seven in it. And they if it if it's one of those numbers, they have to say either Biz or Buzz, and it goes either the same direction or the opposite. And and they have some fun with it and. Uh, and they're, you know, going back and forth. If, they, if you hesitate or mess up, your team starts over again. And so what they do is they'll go and they'll practice it, and I give them lots of opportunities to practice over in their own small little groups, and they mess up, and uh, they'll get better at it and better. And then um, I pay attention to the body language, so you pay attention to the body language when somebody messes up. So we have a conversation about that. Uh, we uh, And then and a couple other things. And then what we'll do is I tell them, okay, you guys have had time to practice. Now I want you to come up. You're going to do it one more time, and you guys have to come up to it with a consensus of how high you're going to get before anybody messes up. And they'll all say, well, we'll get to 70 before anybody messes up, and or we'll get to 55. or And I'll say, and I'll make them say it out loud in front of the, all the other groups. And then, okay, so we're going to do it one more time, but this time you're going to do it, and we're all going to stand around and watch you guys. So we all get around them, and we all get very close to them. We can't say anything. We just are right there, and we watch. And, Jim, it's inevitable. They None of them ever get past 28 uh, because things have changed now, and it's a great example of pressure. And so how do we deal with that? And 
uh, and some kids are thinking, well, I hope it doesn't land on me, or I hope I don't mess up, or I hope I don't do this. And um, it's a it's a powerful exercise of, so they can truly feel pressure and the difference between what it's like in practice and now this is competition. And how do we make those things more similar? Another great one, you can't do this one as often, but we talk all the time about everybody being out there and everybody working hard and everybody giving everything they have. And if somebody gives up or somebody's not working hard, it affects everybody. So what you can do is uh, tug of war. Um, and it's a great exercise where you divide your team into halves and uh, or you can do it in based on the number of kids that are out there, if it's 11 or uh, 5 or whatever it is, and you divide them up and you have a go at it and they do tug of war. And whoever wins is best two out of three, they're the champs, and you that's awesome, great. Okay, but we're going to switch sides now. And when we, as they switch sides, you pull one of the kids from the winning team, you pull him or her to over, and as they're going over to the other side, you say, look, I want you to be on that rope, I want you to act like you're pulling with everything you have, but you're not allowed to pull at all. You you cannot Whoa. pull. You just act like you're pulling. And it's amazing. So the team that just won two out of three, many times hard fought, sometimes even not hard fought, they won easily, they lose every single time and very quickly. And, oh, my gosh, what happened? How would that happen and all that stuff? And then we bring them together and ultimately ask that kid, so tell me what happened. Well, you told me to act like I was pulling, but I didn't pull. I was faking it. See, that's a very powerful way, tangible way for them to see that even with one of us takes off a little bit, what happens to us? When we're all in and we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing and giving everything we have, look how successful we are. All it takes is one of us to act like we're working hard. It's going to completely undermine our ability to do that. So coaches can talk about that all the time. But boy, if you are, uh, if you can show them what the what the ramifications are or how that plays out, that's even more effective. Wow, fantastic, uh, Greg! Uh, what a fantastic conversation. Uh, could could talk for several more hours. I really appreciate your time. We're going to get this out uh, to as many coaches, parents, especially parents, <laughs> coaches, parents, yeah, and athletes yeah. as as we yeah. can. Just a lot of great things and. Right. I want to thank you for this, and again, thank you for your support of the Positive Coaching Alliance movement. We're we're trying to change sure. the culture of youth sports, and I have to say, so many of the things that you said today are totally what we're we're trying to uh, yep. create as the norm. Just a yep. fantastic conversation. Thank you. A- absolutely, and that's why I love uh, being a part of what you guys are doing in some small way because uh, it, it it is it is a movement, and it is making a difference. So. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.